Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. Additionally, I founded the consultancy P&N Pricing and Negotiations in Healthcare based in Toronto, Canada, which supports companies and individuals globally by coaching, simulations and training, especially on negotiations. This service is including our innovative virtual reality simulation program and is part of the Negotiation Lab. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. Good. Uh, good morning. Good afternoon, Keja. Very happy to have you. And uh, um, I mean, before starting with a slightly different kind of topic, not so much, let's say, maybe only targeting and discussing today about market access, but probably even a bit broader, thinking about the different stakeholders, thinking about different areas of the life cycle of a product development as well. So really happy to have you on board. But as said, before we start, maybe introduce yourself very briefly, Keisha. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stefan, for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, uh, so my name is Kasia Hein-Peters. I'm a doctor uh, and I have worked in the pharmaceutical, biotechnology, medical device industry for over 30 years. Quite recently, about uh, two years ago, I uh, left the corporate world and decided to uh, get engaged more uh, with the startups uh, in healthcare and life sciences space. So I am currently an advisor uh, to a couple of startups. I'm a small angel investor. Um, I am also a mentor into uh, incubators and a chief medical officer in one of those startups. Very good. Very impressive. So, I mean, as you already said, I think uh, innovation, um, incubation, uh, early startups. So maybe we start that those kind of early stages. I think especially in those ones, I think companies are especially obviously busy with getting the science and the technology down and with keeping investor trust and a viable cash runway, which is obviously as well important. So commercialization at the end of the day, which is very much linked then to market access, funding, reimbursement, feels for most of them, I guess, light years away. From your perspective, is that rather short-sighted and might maybe even lead into, I'd say at least in the long run, into suboptimal commercial outcomes? Was that maybe just very simple the way how it goes and Whatever comes in the future might come anyway. Well, I think that this is one of the major mistakes that some founders make, and especially the ones who uh, come to uh, uh, the startup world and develop their own companies while not having strong commercialization experience from their past. Uh, you know, I, I met a lot of founders who uh, believe that if they develop a wonderful product, the world will embrace it and selling this uh, you know, fantastic product, the best in class, uh, it will be very easy. And they completely underestimate the market forces that will work against them. And just the fact that every product, uh, even uh, a wonderful one, needs a very strong go-to-market strategy, which obviously includes uh, a market access, especially uh, with products that are sold to hospitals or clinics or have to be uh, prescribed to patients. 
right? We are not talking necessarily about products that are directed at consumers, which may require a different set of data and uh, not necessarily such a strong set of data uh, that will be um, useful for payers. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think you bring already um, a very interesting kind of perspective into the discussion, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I think if you, let's say, bring it down to, let's say, a, a base case in a way, right? We have a lot of different stakeholders, right? Independent to whom we would sell it, right? I mean, we have the, you said already, let's say the prescribers, the hospitals, yeah. hospital could be the, let's say also the 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 the, um, uh, the payers at the end of the day, right? Even if you would have a product which you would directly sell to a patient, right? It has different kind of let's say stakeholders, and and hence it's a cool question how to let's say have all of those in the mind, especially in the different kind of development steps. So I know because we have met and discussed in in, in another kind of forum a couple of weeks ago. You mentioned uh, the so-called dive approach, which is more integrated business approach. I, I mean, I know what it is, but I'm not an expert, obviously, because you are the expert. But I think it would be great if you could give a, a good and solid kind of introduction to our listeners today. So what is the dive approach, what you're suggesting? Yeah, and I, this is a framework that I developed to make it, make this whole commercialization, or I would say enterprise strategy development, which includes product development and commercialization, uh, make this process a little easier to understand for startup founders who might uh, very frequently have scientific backgrounds. They might be engineers, physicians, they might be scientists with PhD. And just to put it in kind of terminology and kind of buckets that are easy to understand, I developed a framework that uh, you already know about. So DIVE stands for uh, Discovery, Innovation, Value, and Execution. And I think these are four dimensions that every founder should be always aware of. And every company is always doing all four. It's just that depending on the stage at which they are, they may be doing more of the discovery or more of the innovation, which is product development, or more of the value building, which is the marketing strategy. So uh, describing briefly what these different dimensions are, discovery is the market discovery. So it's everything that a company must know uh, about the market forces, about the unmet need, about different stakeholders and the relationships between them in order to be able to develop the right product and also later develop the right uh, marketing strategy. The innovation part is about product development, so how to make the product innovative, meaning not only uh, new from the technology perspective, but adding value in the market. And this is done through the right clinical program that actually includes uh, endpoints that are important for payers. We are talking mostly about payers today, but it also includes uh, some endpoints that might be important for prescribers and patients. Mm -hmm. So we shouldn't forget about that. Uh, this is the regulatory strategy. This is the IP strategy. So this all contributes. This is your, uh, you know, how you build your label uh, through your clinical development program. This is everything that then builds the actual product profile. So that's the innovation part. The value is the actual marketing strategy. So this is your targeting and segmentation, um, the customer personas, value proposition, messaging, building your brand. That's that's the value, uh, the kind of the commercial value uh, of the product that you build in the market. And finally, execution is how you do it. It's your scaling up the company uh, with the right functions, the right capabilities. It's also your go-to-market strategy. 
So I think it's a simple uh, model uh, to understand. And as I said before, every company should uh, be capable to operate within these four dimensions. If you miss one of them, if you don't really have capabilities in one of those dimensions, I think there's really no chance of being successful in the healthcare and life sciences market. Exactly. No, I, I can only agree with you. I mean, how do you, let's say, push maybe, especially maybe founders of companies where they might have obviously great ideas around the product itself, right? Because otherwise they, they would and could not really anyway move forward, right? If it's engineers or physicians or whoever, right? How could you force them as well to get all of the other kind of functions into that kind of mindset, right? I mean, it could start with the discovery already, right? Because they might be more into the kind of innovation, as you said, right? Into the trial planning, they know what the physicians, prescribers need. Maybe they even have a bit of the payer in mind and the patient, but maybe some of the other aspects are missing. So how, how do you, let's say, enforce that, especially maybe with the startups where it might also be difficult from a resource perspective? You know, it is, I would say that I cannot probably enforce that because I met many founders who uh, were left unconvinced and they continued their path on product development without a very strong market understanding or without even thinking about uh, the business model. So uh, some people uh, think that they know and don't know what they don't know and they stay on this path. And that's maybe one of the reasons, not only one, but one of the reasons why so many startups are unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do, I always try to show how successful companies do it and really speak to founders through examples of successful companies and then show them how they have done it. And I have to say that each successful company actually did this dive properly. So you can actually show elements of the strategies of successful companies and say, well, that's how successful companies do it. I think speaking through examples is probably the only way that that convinces some people, but obviously not all. Yeah, no, yeah, I, th- I think that's a that's a very good one. Yeah, of of course. And you know, I mean, it's it, it's with everything, right? I mean, some people cannot be convinced until they have experienced it. Some people just follow the logic or try those little things one after the other and then see that it really works. They have the experience as well and also the other examples then. And then, then they might potentially as well to bring it into full life. I mean, you said that the, let's say in your introduction that you focus obviously, let's say quite a bit on startups, um, I think at the, at the moment. But I think if you, let's say, keep thinking about the full kind of dive approach and you, I think already kindly said it, uh, but I would rather say that such a kind of approach or mindset probably even uh, should be used by any kind of company, right? In any kind of life cycle stage, it might be maybe just that the, let's say, focus might be a bit different, right? Maybe pushing a bit away yes. from the innovation to some other parts. But at the end of the day, you always need to have that in mind with different kind of waiting in there. Do you agree? Yes, yes I absolutely agree with you. And I think I think that uh, the DIE framework is very useful for any company of any size, I would say that in very big pharmaceutical companies, for example, the different elements of this process are done, conducted by very different teams. So you sometimes when you sit in the global franchise or maybe if you sit in the R&D, you actually don't see this entire process, but it is always there. And the best companies do not work in silos. Uh, So the best companies actually have this overarching, I call it horizontal enterprise strategy where you don't just hand over 
a project from one team to another, but you actually work together to have this horizontal strategy done right, which again includes all four elements, and then having very deep vertical expertise so that when the regulatory team comes in or R&D team comes in and then the global marketing team comes in, they actually continue the horizontal strategy that is already in place. But again, in bigger companies, it's a little bit less visible because everybody has their role. And the management is so far away. The management actually sees this entire process. Exactly. But the management is sometimes so far away that that we we are just feel like we are little little pieces in a big machine, you know, working toward launching of a new product, but we don't see the entire process from the start to finish. It also takes many years. Exactly. But yes, you're right. It, it is always there. And really good companies do all these four dimensions uh, really well. No, I, I can only agree. And I, I, I could just very quickly add, I mean, uh, when I think back about my industry time at uh, at Roche many years ago, I think they were basically ready pursuing at that time. I mean, they called it a life cycle approach, right? Where they had mm -hmm. life cycle teams, but within those life cycle teams, we had all of the important functions in there, right? Product development, yes. marketing, uh, let's say clinic trial execution, market access, pricing, uh, you know, different kind of regional heads with the different kind of marketing and commercialization kind of ideas, et cetera. So it 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 was already, let's say, uh, uh, very, I would say, successfully be implemented with Roche. I think and then also, I think uh, Genentech at the time, I think they had a slightly different, uh, let's say, approach, but still around the same idea, right? So they are very good examples also by big companies. So I, I've, I fully yes. agree. Now, now with the yeah. startups, I should add, with the startups, the problem is that obviously they don't have these big teams. Yeah. They don't have these uh, big resources. So um, I think that's why, that's why even in a startup, it feels sometimes a little fragmented. You know, mm -hmm. I do this and then I do that. Mm -hmm. And then I turn over to that team that I still have to hire. It already feels very fragmented if you do not have this overarching process or this overarching approach that helps you to understand that there are actually always these four dimensions. Exactly. No, no, I <laughs> I can agree. I think I think what is really difficult, I think, is is probably as you said it now as well. I think depending on in which company you are, you either don't see it because it's a big company, right? And you're just working mm -hmm. your let's say expertise, or you're maybe yeah. in a very small company where you would maybe just need to think how to best uh, let's say think about those four dimensions but I have only limited time, limited resources, right? So I might maybe yes. just automatically need to focus a bit more on one, one or the other aspect. But I think the, the important thing is really don't lose the kind of overarching goal, which is then really that overall, an overarching kind of mindset and yeah. approach. It is, it is in a way uh, working with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. And even though there are moments when the company focuses almost entirely on product development, which is the innovation part, that's perfectly fine. As long as when they were designing the product development process or studies, uh, they actually took into consideration this overarching strategy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's perfectly fine to focus on different aspects of these four dimensions during different times of the company life cycle. As long as it's kind of always top of mind where we are actually going and why. And this exactly. is where the kind of the well-designed, this horizontal strategy uh, strategy uh, works better. What I've noticed also, which is interesting, is that uh, even some very good incubators uh, typically do not teach founders how to develop the enterprise strategy. 
they spend a lot of time on the verticals, mm -hmm. you know, how to do customer discovery, then how to do regulatory strategy, how to do product development. And for each of those verticals, they invite an expert. But there is this, and, and that's why um, that's why I developed my own training, which I call Sciencepreneur Academy, because I found out that this overarching strategy development is missing. Yeah. So, so I think that uh, with all good intent to teach uh, founders everything that they need to know about product development, regulatory IP, you know, marketing strategy, what have you, storytelling for startups, what have you. I think we are missing a little bit this approach that is uh, the uh, kind of overarching over all these verticals that, yes, they have to know about, but there has to be this horizontal strategy that connects all the dots. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's a, that's a very good um, um, point. Um, as we obviously focus quite a bit uh, on our podcast series on payers and market access reimbursement, right? Um, when when you speak about that kind of integrated approach, right? The dive yes. kind of um, mindset. Um, how early would you advise companies bring the payers view into the planning or the concept and, and why, right? I mean, I could imagine, right? It's it's a key component, but as yes. you said, especially in the startup area, it's maybe also a question of, or as already said, of resource issues, right? So mm -hmm. how early would you say it would be early enough to get the mindset into the concept? So it's quite early on, I would say, because I think that what happens with this within a startup is that the first thing is that the founder sees the unmet need and very quickly has an idea about the product, right? And then uh, I think they know that they need to start the uh, market discovery or customer discovery and really find out how big this unmet need is, how is it prioritized by the healthcare system, uh, will they succeed with this type of a product, etc. And kind of assessing in these early stages, you know, should I develop this type of product or not? They should look at the reimbursement picture. And it doesn't mean that if there is no reimbursement for similar products, that this reimbursement will never be. But this, uh, because obviously we know that we launched products in the past that never had reimbursement and we get we got reimbursement. So um, the clinical development path will be different. So I think that quite early on, realizing what is the uh, the situation uh, with the reimbursement for this type of class of product, and can we build on existing reimbursement, existing codes, for example, in the U.S., mm -hmm. or existing you know classes of products uh, outside of the U.S., can we build on existing reimbursement that's already there, or will we have to actually convince payers because the product is so new that it will not fit into the existing picture? So, or, or the market. So I think this is uh, a decision, this is the knowledge that they should acquire early on because the way how the clinical trials are designed then may be different, right? Because if you need to get reimbursement for a completely new product, then the question is what kind of data pairs will be looking at? And from that, you derive some endpoints that you may add to your clinical trials which obviously have to satisfy regulators. But if your clinical trials satisfy only regulators, then you are approved, you can launch, and then you start developing another study to satisfy payers, which basically delays you by two or three years yeah. with your actual proper launch, right? And the company is struggling despite the product being already on the market because payers require the data. 
right? And they usually require some data in addition to what regulators require. So I think that, and maybe different for different classes. So I think that understanding a payer is a very important stakeholder during the discovery phase, then informs the right product development. And I think that's why I would bring this thinking very early on. Mm -hmm. Since payer is such an important uh, stakeholder, it's basically a gatekeeper. Yeah, exactly. Right? And you cannot do much without data. Exactly. So exactly. so I think that it's really this delay that's happening after the product is already registered, but before it's reimbursed, that's very frustrating for small companies and also very frustrated for investors because they did expect that the company will have a successful launch after a FDA or EMA or another regulatory agency approval, and it's not happening. No, exactly, exactly. I think you partly already answered a bit what, what I have heard a couple of times in the last uh, many years now. I mean, especially when speaking to maybe people at the product development, uh, let's say, sites, when they just say, also sometimes even from, from regulatory guys, when they just said, look, I mean, we first need to have a product before we could, let's say, think about the next steps, which is then also payers and then later on maybe even patients or yeah. prescribers, right? But because, I mean, if we don't have a a kind of product, we just fail at the end of the day anyway. So I think a lot of times what I, where I have heard that is, for example, when we were speaking about uh, overall survival as a primary endpoint in oncology, right? Where people yes. were just saying, look, I mean, what if we just simply fail with the trial in overall survival? We would not even have a product at all because we would not get approval by the regulatory agencies. So that is why maybe, it's not the reason always, right? But, I, but we heard that, uh, that maybe progression-free survival is taken as the primary endpoint and over survival maybe as a kind of secondary endpoint. But then I think as you said already, you could potentially even end up in the way that either payers are not reimbursing it or at least not, not for the price the company was envisioning yeah. it to have it. Yes, and also one thing I'd like to say is that actually very true because the data that are required by payers could be viewed as part of the product profile. And the question then also becomes, what kind of product would I like to have on the market? Do I want to have a very much a me too type of product that has the same data and the same endpoints as somebody else? Or do I believe that my product is better, but then I have to prove it? And one of the things, one of the competitive advantages is actually some data that payers required, maybe some additional data on quality of life. It may be some real-world data on uh, patients' adherence to medication, right? It doesn't have to be very uh, significant additional primary endpoint, but some data collected during, during the phase three trial uh, that will actually help to differentiate the product in the market. And I also don't see, and maybe this is a, 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 an aspect of founders not thinking about payers and other stakeholders early enough, but then products come to the market not differentiated enough. Mm. And especially with medical devices, the regulatory path that companies usually take, which is, am I sufficiently comparable with another product? And therefore I can say, oh, I am almost like the other product. So please, rain, please uh, register me fast, dear FDA, uh, a 510K process. This is not a differentiation process. Because then they end up with a label like the product that they compared themselves to, right? So sometimes other pathways, even though a little bit more difficult, actually lead to a higher commercial success because the product that comes to the market is more differentiated. And I think 
instead of thinking about payers in a sense of, uh, you know, uh, it is a problem because I have to create additional data. Let's think about this as a potential to differentiate in the markets, exactly. you know, and therefore being more appealing to different audiences. And also, if this is then in the label, then you can talk about it, right? It's become part of your of your messaging and, and your marketing campaign. If it's not in the label, you cannot talk about it. Exactly. So I would look at this, I would kind of turn it around and say, how do I differentiate better in the market with different uh, my different stakeholders? No, no, I, I, I can only agree. I think it's, it's a very good point just to, let's say, switch a bit also again and hear the mindset, right? But just not th- thinking about this is the payer requirement itself, but rather... Um, thinking about, let's say, maybe also requirements at the end of the day, right? Because we need yeah. to fulfill these, right? From regulatory perspective, from let's say payers perspective, from whatever kind of perspective. But at the end of the day, if you think about, let's say, product profile, then it's rather differentiation factors also yes. against either competition or comparators, or even, let's say, from a targeting perspective, if you think about different target population and patients, right? So it, it's just, yes. let's say, different kind of mindset. And suddenly you see probably also different opportunities with those mm-hmm. kind of additional requests at the end of the day. Yes. And obviously, this all with the understanding that startups uh, don't have a lot of money, so they have to prioritize in a very stringent manner. But with this prioritization, let's not lose the sight of what is the end goal. And the end goal is to help as many patients as we can. Exactly. And we cannot help uh, big groups of patients if we don't have a decent reimbursement. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Because then the product will be, you know, the usage will be incredibly limited. So I think thinking with this, you know, patient in mind and how we serve as many patients as possible, this then kind of, you know, when we work backwards and, and, and de- you know, deploy this, you know, dive framework, I actually think that we may end up with much better differentiated products and therefore more successful ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can only agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I think great discussion. I think um, given the time, I would maybe turn to probably my kind of last question, which is again, always a bit, let's say in the kind of uh, um, let's say future looking, right? So if you could maybe just out of your experience, give kind of maybe two or three key recommendations for one maybe for startups at, at uh, let's say at, at once at, at one side but also for commercially commercially already active companies when they are let's say at the act, actual kind of momentum but planning for the next 5 years so what are those kind of key recommendations as of now from your perspective you know i think that uh, our world changes very fast and i think um i think the pandemic just showed us that out of a sudden we can find ourselves in a situation where we almost don't know how to operate because everything is uncertain so what i would do um uh, you know I, my, my recommendations for companies that are already in the commercialization phase is the first and foremost really understand your market and try to grow this product that you currently have as much as you can Right. Serve as many patients as you can. Be as successful as you can. Now, remember that every business is an S-curve and eventually you will flatten out. So once you are very successfully launching your product, start thinking about scenarios for the future, how the world may develop. So I recommend scenario-based planning for the future because in the current kind of strategic planning environment, we usually try to put probabilities on different events in the future. And I think it's a mistake because we cannot possibly predict 
how probable certain events or certain trends will be. So my recommendation is to actually plan based on scenarios. Try to think about how the world can develop. What are the plausible scenarios that could really affect the company? And then think if we are actually ready for them. And I think one thing that's already materializing, and I see how many companies are not ready for it, is artificial intelligence. And, you know, talking with my clients, uh, some of them, obviously, some startup companies are very well aware, and then they build their solution based on artificial intelligence. Interestingly, some bigger companies are not so well aware, and they don't even have an artificial intelligence as part of their future product development or future service development. So to me, it's a big miss, and we don't have to be guessing right now how the artificial intelligence will change the medicine. We know that it will. Exactly. And we can just think about potential scenarios that will happen and then see if these scenarios materialize, will we actually be ready? And then based on that, we may develop some strategic initiatives being this either better understanding of artificial intelligence role or maybe uh, looking at the market and scouting for some technologies that are already emerging and may be helpful for the company. There are multiple different ways to go about it once we once we kind of figure out what the future might look like again through uh through scenario planning so that's what i recommend and right. i recommend to do it fast because you know we all seem to be surprised by la- large language models that just came out uh obviously people who were closer to this industry they knew it would happen but for all of us who maybe were not so close we were totally surprised out of a sudden we have so many uh, large language models that we can use uh, to help us in our work. Obviously, understanding pluses and minuses of all of them. Uh, and the world changed. A few months ago, the world just changed. Exactly. And who had that in their strategic planning? I guess nobody. <laughs> I would agree. I would, I would fully <laughs> agree. I think I, th- I think that those were probably not even at a appearing in any kind of scenarios and scenario planning. Exactly. Not even that. Exactly. I would like to I would like to meet a company yet that actually had large language models in their as one of the options in their strategic plan. Yeah. No, fully agree. Very so good. So we are we are just to reactive because we don't do scenario-based planning. We are constantly reactive and we actually should be proactive and proactive quickly because the world changes quickly. I know I, I fully agree. I fully agree. Perfect. Thanks a lot for your time. The real Keisha and the real Stefan here. <laughs> no artificial <laughs> intelligence, no language models. It was all real. So it was a great pleasure to have that discussion. It was very insightful. Uh, thanks a lot for your time, Keisha. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That was an episode of MAP, the Market Access Podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.